ಓಂ ನಮೋ ಭಗವತೈ ಶ್ರೀಯಾರಣಾಚಲರಮಣಾಯ ನಮಸ್ಕಾರ ಲಾಸ್ಟ್ ಟೈಮ್ ಐ ಬಿಗ್ಯಾನ್ ಡಿಸ್ಕಸಿಂಗ್ ಪರ್ಸ್ ಥ್ರೀ ಆಫ್ ಆನ್ ಮಿಟೈ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಐ ಕಂಟಿನ್ಯೂ ದಟ್ ಟುಡೇ so just to pick up the thread from where we left off last time um i'll just read the meaning of verse 3 again um what bhagavan says in verse 3 is without knowing oneself if one knows whatever else what that means so what what how can if we don't even know what we ourselves actually are how can whatever knowledge we have about other things be reliable or any real value uh that's the implication of the first sentence without knowing oneself if one knows whatever else what and the second sentence is uh if one has known oneself then what exists to know the implication being if we know ourselves then there's nothing else for us to know um and then he goes on to say when one knows in oneself that self which is the light but shines without separation in separate living sentient beings within oneself the shining of oneself will flash forth this is the shining forth of grace the annihilation of ego the blossoming of happiness so that is the meaning of the verse last time i was discussing the implication of the first sentence without knowing oneself if one knows whatever else so what um so i'll take up the thread from where i continued last time last time i had um among other things i had discussed uh, verse 4 of ulunapdu in which bhagwan uh, um teaches us that whatever is known uh but uh in certain basic respects in certain fundamental respects must be of the same nature as what knows it um and so that was uh, verse 4 of ulunapdu uh, in this meeting i'll begin from discussing verse 9 of ulunapdu i'll be discussing quite a few verses of ulunapdu because they all have bearing on what bhagwan is saying in this uh, third verse of anmavitay um so uh, what bhagwan implies in ulunapdu verse 9 is that the triad of knower knowing and known depends upon the knower namely ego which will cease to exist as such when it knows what it actually is um so i'll just uh, i'll just discuss this first now um all our knowledge of anything other than ourselves entails two factors the subject or knower who is called pramata namely ourself as ego which is what is always aware of itself as i am this body and the object or what is known which is called pramaya however there is also one other factor that is required for us to know anything other than ourself namely a means of knowing a, a means of knowing uh, which is called uh, means of knowing is called pramana uh such as uh, there are many means by which we know things such as seeing hearing tasting smelling feeling perceiving experiencing remembering understanding inferring or believing any testimony but we supposed to be reliable uh, these are just some among the many uh, 
a means of knowing or pramanas. Between these three factors, which are called uh, triputi in Sanskrit or mupadi in Tamil, there is a chain of dependency because without a means of knowing, there could not be anything known. And without a knower, there could not either be a means of knowing or anything known. So the first link in the chain is the knower, the second is the means of knowing, and the third is whatever is known. The latter being the being what the knower knows by any appropriate means of knowing. Of these three factors, therefore, the most fundamental is the knower, and it is, uh, and on it the other two factors depend, as Bhagavan points out in verse nine of Uladunapadu. Um, he uses two terms here, irategal and mupadigal. Irategal means um, pairs or dyads. Uh, that is referring to pairs of opposites, like um, knowledge and ignorance, existence and non-existence, happiness and misery, uh, right and wrong, um, existence and non-existence, life and death. All these are pairs of opposites. These are called iritegal. And the other term he uses is mupadigal, which is a, a Tamil form of the Sanskrit term triputi, uh, which means these three factors, the knower, the means of knowing, and, the no and, and whatever is known. So what he says in this verse is, these, um, for simplicity, I'll, transfer, I'll translate the uh, iritegal and mupadigal as dyads and triads. But dyads here specifically means pairs of opposites, and triads means these three factors of knower, knowing, and known. <clears throat> so what he says is, dyads and triads exist always holding one thing. If one sees within the mind what that one thing is, they will slip off. Only those who have seen, have seen the reality. They will not be confused, see. Um, this is this is a very, Bhagavan has packed a lot into this, uh, so we need to unpack it to understand exactly what he's saying. When he said dyads and triads exist always holding one thing, what is the one thing on which they all depend? They depend upon the ego, the knower. That is, without the knower, there couldn't be anything known, or there couldn't be any there couldn't be any means of knowing or anything known. Because you can't have a means of knowing without something that is knowing. You cannot have a something that is known without something that knows it. And dyads, the pairs of opposites, are things that are known by us. So um Dyads and triads both exist only in the view of ourself as ego. So what they depend upon is ego, which is one of the three factors of the, of the uh, dyad. It's the most fundamental, but it's the knower, um, which is on, upon which the knowing and the known depend. Um, uh, so when he said dyads and uh, triads hold one thing, the one thing they hold is ego. And hold it here means they depend upon it, not literally they hold it. It's actually ego that holds other things. But uh, here he's using the term uh, holding in the sense of depending. And then he goes on to say, if one sees within the mind what that one thing is, they will slip off. Why should this be the case? This is because, as he makes clear in so many verses of Vuludunapadu and elsewhere, the nature of ego 
is such that we rise, stand, and flourish as ego by attending to things other than ourselves. But if we turn our attention back to see what we ourselves actually are, this ego will subside and dissolve back into its source. As he says in verse 25 of Alunapadu, Tedinal Otum Pidicum. If sought, it takes flight. That is, we seem to be ego only so long as we're looking outside. If we turn our attention back within to see what we ourselves actually are, uh, ego will disappear because there's no such thing as ego. We seem to be ego only so long as we're not looking at ourselves. If we look at ourselves, we don't find any such thing as ego. So since ego subsides uh, when we when we investigate ourselves, or as he puts it here, if, we, if one sees within the mind what that one thing is, in other words, if we look within to see what this ego is, ego will subside, and dyads and triads which depend upon ego, they will therefore slip off. In other words, everything... According to Bhagavan, everything depends only upon ego, because all things other than ourself seem to exist only in the view of ourself as ego. When we rise as ego in waking and dream, so many other things seem to exist. When we do not rise as ego, as in sleep, nothing other than ourself seems to exist. So all other things depend for their semi-existence upon the semi-existence of ourself as ego. So if we look within to see what this ego is, ego will subside and everything, all other things will drop off, all the diets and triads will drop off. And then he says, only those who have seen have seen the reality. So what do you mean by only those who have seen? Seen what? The implication is only those who have seen what remains when all diets and triads have ceased to exist, along with their root ego, have seen the reality. Uh, they will not be confused. That is, they will, they will never again be confused by saying anything else at all, because other things do not actually exist. So when we see things other than ourselves, that is a state of confusion, because we're seeing things that don't actually exist as if they actually existed. Um, so that is the implication of this verse. So I'll, I'll go on now to discuss this in more detail. What he refers to here as irritegal, pairs or dyads, are pairs of opposites such as existence and non-existence, life and death, awareness and non-awareness, uh, knowledge and ignorance, happiness and unhappiness, good and bad, liberation and bondage, and so on. And since these are all premaya, things that are known, they're included among the third of the three factors of the constitute triputi, which are what he refers to here as mupadigal, triads, or the trio of knower, knowing, and known. As I explained above, all means of knowing and everything that is known depends on the knower, because without the knower, there could not either be a means of knowing or anything known. And the knower of all things other than ourself is only ourself as ego. Therefore, in the first sentence of this verse, iritegal, mupadigal, indrum, ondru, patri, irupavam, dyads and triads always exist, holding one thing. What he refers to as ondru, one thing, or the one, is ourself as ego. 
we seem to be ego only so long as we're attending to anything other than ourselves. So if instead of attending to anything else, we try to attend to ourselves alone, we as ego will subside and dissolve back into the source from which we rose, namely ourself with pure awareness. And since ego is the uh, one thing on which the entire structure of dyads and triads is built, they too will cease to exist along with ego. As Bhagavan implies in the second sentence of this verse, in which he says, Ab Andru Edu Endru Karitinul Ul Kandal Karalum Abe. If one sees within the mind what that one thing is, they will slip off. Only when we have thus seen the cessation, or to be more precise, the non-existence of all dyads and triads, have we seen what alone is real, namely our self as pure awareness. And having thus seen ourselves as we actually are, we will never be confused by seeing anything else at all. As he implies in the final sentence of this verse, Kandavare umme kanda. Um, the final sentences of this, that verse, that's two sentences. Uh, Kalangare khan. That means only those who have seen have seen the reality. They will not be confused, see. In this context, Kandavare, only those who have seen, can be interpreted in two slightly different but complementary ways. Either we can take to mean those who have seen within the mind what that one thing, namely ego, is, in which case Kandavare Unme Kanda, uh, uh, only those who have seen have seen the reality, would imply that those who have seen what ego actually is, uh, have seen what it is, have seen that it is just pure awareness, uh, which alone is what is real. Or we can take it to mean uh, only those who have seen what remains when dyads and triads have slipped off, in which case the sentence would imply that only those who have seen what remains uh, when they have slipped off have seen uh, that it is just pure awareness, which alone is what is real. Whereas knowledge of anything other than ourself entails this triad of knower, means of knowing, and whatever is known, knowledge of our ourself entails no such triad, but only one thing, namely ourself. Because in self-knowledge, we alone are not only what knows and what is known, but also the means of knowing, since, we are, since what we actually are is just pure awareness. And pure awareness knows itself just by being itself. Since we are always ourself and never anything other than ourself, we always know ourself and are never ignorant of ourself. What what we what we do not need what, what Oh, oh yes, yes, yeah. This is something Bhagavan often used to say. Bhagavan often used to say, we do not need to realize what is real, but only to unrealize what is unreal, meaning that we do not uh, need to gain any new knowledge, but only need to relinquish all wrong knowledge. Uh, so that is what I'll explain now. Why then is it said 
that as ego, we are ignorant of ourselves and therefore need to achieve knowledge of ourselves, Atmanyana or Atmavidya. What is called self-ignorance, Agnano Avidya, is not actually an absence of or lack of self-knowledge, but only a distortion of self-knowledge. Because though we are because though we always know ourselves, we now know ourselves as if we were something other than what we actually are. We because we know ourselves as a body consisting of five sheaths, which is not what we actually are. And all these five sheaths are jada, non-aware. That is why Bhagavan taught us that Ajnana or Avidya, in the sense of self-ignorance, is nothing other than ego, a false awareness that is always aware of itself as I am this body. True self-knowledge, Atmanyana or Atmavidya, is just our fundamental awareness of our own existence, I am. So since self-ignorance is just the false awareness, I am this body, even when we are self-ignorant, we do not cease to know ourselves. Therefore, in order to know ourselves as we actually are, we do not need to acquire any knowledge that we do not already possess, but just need to get rid of the wrong knowledge or false awareness, I am this body, which we, which we as ego have now superimposed upon our ever-shining correct knowledge or real awareness, I am. As Bhagavan sometimes used to say humorously when pointing out that the popular English term self-realization is actually a misnomer, what he used to say is, we ourselves are always real, so there's no need for us to realize ourselves. The problem is that we've now realized what is unreal, namely the body and world. So all that is required is for us to realize the, sorry, all that is required is for us to unrealize the unreal, and then what is real alone will remain existing and shiny as it always is. So how can we unrealize the unreal? The unreal seems to be real only because we give it a semblance of reality by attending to it. So to unrealize it, all we need to do is to attend only to what is actually real, namely our self as the pure awareness I am. In other words, the unreal, the unreal seems to be clinging, uh, the unreal seems to be clinging to us only because we are clinging to it. So if we cling only to ourself and thereby cease clinging to anything else, everything else will drop off and we alone will remain shining as I am, as we always actually are. That is, not, we, we, we all feel that we are in bondage, but nothing is actually binding us. Nothing is holding on to us. Uh, but the reason we seem to be in bondage is that we are holding on to all, of, all these other things. We are holding on to this body as if it were I, and through the sense of this body, we're constantly holding other things. So all we need to do is give up holding all these things and they'll drop off. But in order to give up holding them, because the very nature of ourselves as ego is to always hold things other than ourselves, as Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Ulunaptu, uh, Urupatri Yundam, grasping form it comes into existence. Urupatri Nikkum, grasping form it stands or endures. Urupatri Undu Mika Ongum, uh, Grasping and feeding on forms, it uh, flourishes abundantly. Uh, Uruvitu Urupatram, leaving form, it grasps form. 
So the very nature of ego is to be constantly grasping form. Therefore, if instead of grasping other things, if we try to grasp ourselves, if we try to grasp our own being, we as ego will subside because we're not holding on to anything other than ourselves. And when we subside, everything else will subside along with us. That is why he says it, uh, the dyads and triads will slip off. This is what he implies in the second sentence of the above verse, verse 9 of Uludhanapadu, of Andru Edu, Andru Karitinol Kandal, Karalum Abe. If one sees within the mind what that one thing, namely ego, is, they, namely the dyads and triads, will slip off. Attending to anything other than ourself is what is called thinking or mental activity, chitta vritti. So what is called thought uh, uh, is just attention to and consequent awareness of anything other than ourself. So long as we allow our attention to move away from ourself towards anything else, the outward going, that outward going movement, pravritti, of our attention is what gives rise to the appearance or seeming existence of all other things. So as long as we continue indulging ourselves in attending to anything other than ourselves, we are, we are perpetuating the seeming existence and reality of such things. Therefore, if we attend only to ourselves and thereby put an end to all thinking, the appearance and seeming reality of all other things will be dissolved along with all the thoughts that it consists of, as Bhagavan implied in the first two sentences of the first verse of Anmabhide. What he said in those two sentences is, May I nirantaram tan ayadu irandidam poyam udumbu ulahum may I muletu erum. That means, though oneself uh, incessantly and indubitably exists as real, the body and world, which are unreal, arise sprouting as real. And then he goes on to say, Hoi meya nedevu anovum viadu odingidove meya idea belly bayon swayam that means um, when thought, which is composed of unreal darkness, is dissolved in such a manner that it does not revive even an iota, in the heart space, which is real, oneself, the sun, will shine by oneself. Therefore, we can unrealize the unreal only by attending to what alone is actually real, namely our own existence, I am the bright sun of pure awareness, which is the infinite space called the heart. Um, does anyone have any questions on anything I've said so far? Uh, sir, I have a doubt. I have a question that uh, yes. uh, how can we keep ourselves uh, to the self? The, uh, from uh, morning to evening, we are doing things and work. We are watching things. So uh, means the things are not uh, the the outward things which are not real are uh, we are getting uh, entangled with that. Now means 
too yeah. much so yes. means uh, we, how can we remain with this self yeah okay how do we get entangled with these things we get entangled with them because we have so much interest in these things we so why so this, this is the this is matlab uh, there is the interest why yeah well is. this is the nature because now we take ourselves to be this body and as this body we depend on so many other things we need food we need clothing we need air to breathe we need water to drink so we seem by by identifying ourselves as a body we seem to be dependent on things other than ourselves so it seems to us but if we get more of the other things then we'll be happier if i have more money i'll be happy if i have more this i'll be happy if i'm more learned i'll be happy or if i have more um whatever we whatever interests us if i watch more cricket i'll be happier or whatever it is we we think we are dependent on other things because we have identified ourselves with this body this body is certainly dependent without air it will die in a few minutes without water it will die in a few days without food it will die in a few more days so we we are dependent on so many things as this body but are we this body so we it is the nature of ego to take interest in things other than itself because ego seems to be seems to depend on things in fact it is true without grasping things other than ourselves we cannot stand for a moment as ego because we now seem to be ego we therefore have a very strong inclination to grasp other things but inclinations to grasp other things are what are called vishaya vasanas so the vishaya the obstacles are not the external world the obstacles are our own vishaya vasanas which make us inclined to attend to the world um what you, coming back to your question whatever you may be doing whatever you may be experiencing what is your one fundamental experience your one fundamental experience is i am without knowing i am you couldn't know any other thing so the one thing we know always throughout the waking state we know i am throughout dream state we know i am throughout sleep we know i am so the one real knowledge the one real awareness is this fundamental awareness i am that fundamental awareness i am in its pure condition is brahman but now it it seems to be mixed and conflated with adjuncts you're instead of being aware of ourselves as just i am we're aware of ourselves as i am this body and so we have imposed all these limitations on us ourselves and because of these limitations it seems to us to be necessary to uh, depend on other things but in sleep we are perfectly happy without any of these things whatever may interest us in the waking state we forget all these things when we fall asleep and we are perfectly happy um the the billionaire has to leave his billions when he goes to sleep the the powerful politician has to leave all his power when he goes to sleep the person who's very interested in philosophy has to leave all his philosophy when he goes to sleep the scientist has to leave all his science when he goes to sleep the cricket player has to leave all his cricket when he goes to sleep we leave everything when we go to sleep 
yet we are perfectly happy. So we should understand from this, but though as ego we seem to be dependent on other things, we actually do not depend on anything other than ourselves. Our dependence on other things is an illusion caused by our rising as ego. So if we have oh. some discrimination, this is what is known in, in Vedanta. The first qualification of, uh, to, for the study and practice of Vedanta is nitya anitya vastu viveka. That is, we need to distinguish uh, what is permanent from what is impermanent. Everything we experience is impermanent, but the one thing that is permanent is I am. Uh, our fundamental awareness, our own being, is permanent. Even ego, the knower of all other things, is impermanent, because ego appears in waking and dream, it disappears in sleep. So what we actually are is what is permanent, because in, even though ego is absent in sleep, we exist there. So we need to apply some discrimination. That is, we need to use our viveka to understand Though we seem to be dependent on all these other things, actually we are not truly dependent on these things. We do not need anything other than ourselves. So we, the practice of Atmavichara is a practice of weaning our mind off its attachment to things other than ourselves. So we need to hold on to self-attentiveness. What is real is only ourselves. So at all, being self-attentive is holding what is real. If we, but to the extent to which we hold what is real, the unreal will drop off. But then the question arises: But I've got a, I've got a busy, busy life. I've got, a, I've got wife or husband and children. I've got elderly parents. I've got so much responsibility. I've got a, I've got a high-pressure job that makes so many demands on me, and I need to do this in order to pay all the bills. So how can I spend my time tending to myself when I've got all these responsibilities? If we are realistic with ourselves, if we consider things carefully, if we consider how, consider what we think about during the day, we think so many thoughts about so many things, but most of the thoughts we think are not thoughts that are immediately necessary. We're not always thinking about the, if we're at work, we're not only thinking about the work we're doing, we'll also be in the back of our mind, we'll be thinking about um, what, um, uh, how we're going to pay the bills, what, we, what, uh, what shopping we need to do on the way home in the evening, um, what problems there are at home. We, we'll be thinking so many things. In the background, those thoughts are going on, whatever the work we be do we're doing. So if we, if we consider the matter carefully, it is clear to us that the majority of thoughts we think are not actually necessary. That is, whatever we may think about the problems we face in life, we can't solve those problems. At office, we have to do our office work. So me, thinking about all the other problems in life isn't going to solve those problems because we're now supposed to be attending to our office work. But if instead of thinking all the unnecessary thoughts, if we were to 
to replace all unnecessary thoughts with attention to ourselves. Uh, most of our attention would be on ourselves because actually the work we do requires very little attention. Take, for example, nowadays many people drive cars. If you are if you're a car driver, once you get used to driving, particularly for example, if you drive to work every day, you it's the same route you drive on, the same place where a traffic light you have to stop and you have to proceed, and there are different uh, road hazards on the way, um, different uh, vehicles coming from all directions. We navigate through all these things with actually with a minimal amount of attention. If you were to attend to everything, you wouldn't be a very good driver. Whereas if you were attending to everything, your attention would be too scattered. So actually, we do many tasks more efficiently with minimum attention. If we gave too much attention to what we're doing, we, we would be making mistakes. So in fact, most of the tasks we do in the daytime, during, I mean, in, during our life, are tasks which are better done with minimum attention than with a lot of attention. Because we, because things, if we, if you're driving a car, for example, or riding a bicycle or anything, before you knew how to drive a car or ride a bicycle, it seemed difficult. But once you've learned it, it becomes second nature to you. So these things you do automatically without thinking about it. If you get on a bicycle and think about how you're going to balance on the bicycle, you're not going to be able to balance. But because you know, because you've ridden a bicycle so many times, you without even thinking about it, you're able to balance easily. But supposing while you're sight riding your cycle, you're suddenly beginning to think, how how am I balancing? Am I really able to balance? When you start to think about it, you'll topple off. So, like there's so many things in life we actually do better with minimum attention. So since most tasks we do don't require a lot of attention, if we really are interested to know who am I, we could be attending to ourselves. An analogy I often give to illustrate this is, supposing a very dear friend of yours was critically ill in hospital, in ICU. They may have caught COVID or something, or they may have had an accident or something. But anyway, whatever the, whatever the cause, for some reason, they're critically ill in hospital. And the doctors are not able, the doctors and nurses are doing all they can to take care of your friend. But the doctors have told you or told uh, your friend's relatives, we, it's, uh, it's touch and go. We will do our best. But it's in God's hands. We 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 can't we, we can't say whether you're, whether he's going to he or she is going to recover or not. If it's in in such a situation, will you not be often thinking about your friend, even when you're at work? The thought of your friend will be, keep on coming to your mind, even when you're driving your car. The thought of your friend will be coming to uh, uh, coming to your mind, even when you're at home cooking or washing the pots and pans or whatever you may be doing, that thought of your friend will be constantly in the background of your mind because of your love and concern for them. If you had an equal amount of love and concern to know who am I, whatever pressing responsibilities you may have, you would find time to attend to yourself. 
So it's ultimately, it's not a matter of, it's not external activities that are getting in the way. The problem is our own vishaya vasanas, our own liking to attend to things other than ourselves, our own liking to take interest in other things. That is the problem. To overcome that problem, the only way is patient and persistent practice. That is, by attending to ourselves, by trying to attend to ourselves more and more, we are gradually strengthening the sattvasana, the love to hold on to our own being and thereby just to subside and be as we actually are. And we are correspondingly weakening the vishaya vasanas. So the only way to cultivate the sattvasana and to weaken the vishaya vasanas is to persevere in this practice of self-attentiveness as much as we can. Why I say as much as we can? Because we will not do more than we have love for. If we have no love for attending to ourselves and so much interest in other things, so much interested in the, the stock market or the latest scientific papers on global warming or whatever it, whatever may interest us, if we have more interest in those things than in knowing ourselves, our attention will, the attention naturally goes to where our interests lie. So our attention will go within only when we are passionately interested in knowing who am I. Most of us don't yet have sufficiently strong interest, sufficiently strong love to know what we actually are and to be what we actually are. But we can gain that by patient and persistent practice. So if we consider Bhagavan's teachings and understood Bhagavan's teachings, at least to a certain extent, that should be enough to get us started. And the more we persevere in this, the more important this will become to us. The more we will feel, um, we, we will feel something is lacking when we're not attending to ourselves. So we'll be trying to attend to ourselves more and more and more. So as Bhagavan said, nobody has succeeded. Nobody ever could succeed in this path without patient perseverance. We have to continue, however difficult it may seem to be, we have to continue trying. The theme of this song we're discussing, Anna the theme of this song, the Pallavi is Aye Ati Sulapum. Ati Sulapum. That is ah, extremely easy. This Atma Vidya is extremely easy. But to us, it seems to be difficult. Why does it seem to be difficult? Because we are more interested in other things than we are interested in knowing ourselves. So that it is not actually difficult, it just seems to be difficult. But we can overcome this seeming difficult difficulty by patient and persistent practice. There is no other way. What about grace? Will not grace help us? Yes, grace is helping us here and now. It is grace that is giving us the liking to turn within. Ultimately, it's all the work of grace. Whatever effort we make is the work of grace. So grace is playing up its part. We need to play our part by yielding ourselves to grace. Since grace is the force that is pulling our attention inwards, we can yield ourselves to grace only by trying our best to turn within. And we shouldn't think that a change of lifestyle is going to make any difference. 
We may think, oh, now I've got so many cares and responsibilities and everything, so I'm not able to practice. If I go and I, um, if I uh, renounce everything and go and uh, become a sannyasi and sit in a cave in the Himalayas, then I'll have plenty of time for attending to myself. If you're not able to attend to yourself here and now, you will not be able to attend to yourself, however remote the cave in the Himalayas may be. Because even there you'll have some worries. How, how am I going to tackle the cold? How am I going to get enough food to eat? There'll be so many worries you have there. So long as the mind likes to go out, it will always find something to latch on to, something to, be, to think about. But if we have love to turn within, nothing external can obstruct us. As Bhagavan often used to say, prarabdha affects only the outward term mind, but it can never prevent us turning our mind within. So it's according to prarabdha that we have so much work, so many responsibilities, and so on and so forth. But the same prarabdha that has given us these responsibilities will also, that is in accordance with that prarabdha, God who has given us that prarabdha will make our mind, speech, and body do whatever is necessary for that prarabdha to unfold. As Bhagavan says in the first sentence of the note he wrote for his mother, avarabha prarabdha prakaram adakanavan angangirindu artavipan. That means in accordance with the prarabdha of each one, he who is for that, meaning God or Guru, the, the one who is allotted the prarabdha, Angangirindu, being there, there, means being in each and every place. In other words, being in the heart of each one of us, Artavipan, he will make us act. So whatever actions you need to do in order for your prarabdha to unfold, you will be made to do that. So if it is your destiny to be uh, a family person, to have 10 children, to have a, a very responsible job and everything, that will all happen, and you will do whatever is necessary to make that happen. But if you are wise, you will not attach importance to these things. You'll attach importance only to turning within. And your turning within will not prevent the prarabdha. The prarabdha will go on as it's meant to go on. But by turning within, we are separating ourselves from the experience of the prarabdha. So whatever bad prarabdha may come, let it come. If we hold on to ourselves, even if uh, our next prarabdha is to be put in hell, fine, no problem. So long as we're holding on to ourselves, not even hell can, can uh, touch us. So it's all, that's why Bhagavan said, Bhakti is the mother of jnana. It's all a matter of love. And we can cultivate that love only by patient and persistent practice. How does patient and persistent practice cultivate the love? Because we would do the practice only to the extent we have love. And the more we do the practice, the more that love will grow. So by, by, whole, by attending to other things, we are feeding and nourishing the satvasanas, the inclinations to attend to them. By attending to ourselves, we are feeding and nourishing the satvasana and starving all the other vasanas. So patient and persistent practice is the only way. So if we're serious about this, we will try our best. 
We may not always succeed. Many times we'll fail. Many times our attention will go outwards and get caught up in all the worldly concerns and so on. Doesn't matter. However many times the attention goes away, we need to bring it back and try to hold on to self-attentiveness. Does that adequately answer your question? Yes, sir. Uh, sir, I, I have another question. Uh, yes. That uh, if I close my eyes and I want to see that uh, who am I, and I am questioning myself. So yes. if I see, then there is nothing. There is just silence. If, if I inquire more, there is only silence. Uh, but and this silence is always there. If I am asking you the question, this silence is going on behind. I yes. don't know what is this. I don't know what is this. That, that is, firstly, to inquire who am I, we don't need to close our eyes. Because whether our eyes are open or closed, we're aware I am. When we turn but, our attention inwards, if okay. it seems to us that we are seeing a blank, we are looking at something other than ourselves. So who is aware of that blank? I am. There's actually no such thing as a void or a blank, because whatever void or blank may appear, we are present there to be aware of it. So it's silent not emptiness. Not, not emptiness, silence. Silence, silence, fine. Yeah, Whatever we call it. Whatever we call it. Silence is our own real nature. But, not, but silence, when Bhagavan talks about silence, he's not talking about physical silence. He's not talking about mental silence. He's talking about the silence of pure being. As you say, that silence is ever present there. However much noise there is, that is, however much the mind is agitated, however much noise there may be outside, in our heart, the silence of pure being is always shining. So if we hold on to that and recognize that that alone is real, that's all that we need to do. Just hold on to it more and more and more. But if you take that silence to be something other than yourself, if that silence is something that appears and disappears, then it is not what you actually are. But if you can recognize that that silence is what is ever present, even in the midst of what, any amount of mental activity, any amount of um, activity in the surroundings, if you recognize that the underlying all that is this silence that is ever shining in our heart as our own being, I am, if that is the silence you're talking about, that is what you need to hold on to, because that alone is real. But if the silence you're talking about is something that appears and disappears, that is not the real silence, because the real silence is eternal. It is ever-present, ever-shining. It is what we all experience as I am. And that silence is Bhagavan. That silence is God. That silence is Guru, whatever you want to call it. That alone is what is real. That is Brahman. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Are, are there any other questions? Okay. So shall I continue a, a bit more to discuss this um, this verse? So. I, I've talked about verse 9 of Uludunapadu. 
verse nine is the first of a of a series of verses. That is, in verse nine, Bhagavan talks about dyads in general. Dyads, the dyads he's talking about are pairs of opposites. Then in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, he talks about one of the very fundamental dyads, the dyad of knowledge and ignorance. So that is what um that's what he talks about in these verses. And this is these what these verses are directly relevant to what he's saying, what we're talking about in what he's talking about in this third verse, he says, um, um without knowing oneself, if one knows whatever else, so what? If one has known oneself, then what exists to know? So these verses of Ulujunabdu, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, are extremely relevant to what he's saying here. So I will begin to discuss these now. That is, in um, the implication of verse 10 is that real awareness is only awareness that is aware of oneself, uh, awareness that is aware of ourself as we actually are, which is the reality of ego. That is, what we actually are is the reality of ego. And ego is the one to whom all knowledge and ignorance about other things appear. Since self-ignorance, avidya, is not an absence of the one real knowledge I am, but just a seeming distortion of it, it is not actually ignorance, but just an erroneous knowledge or false awareness. Self-knowledge and self-ignorance are therefore not a dyad or pair of opposites, because even in the midst of self-ignorance, self-knowledge continues to shine as I am, albeit seemingly in the view of ourself as ego, mixed and completed with adjuncts as I am this body. So self-knowledge exists and shines eternally, independent of and untouched by the appearance or disappearance of self-ignorance. Hence, when Bhagavan talks about the dyad of knowledge and ignorance in verse 10 of Uludunapu, the knowledge and ignorance he is referring to is not knowledge and ignorance of ourself, but only knowledge and ignorance of other things. What he says in verse 10 is, without ignorance, knowledge does not exist. Without knowledge, that ignorance does not exist. Only the knowledge or awareness that knows oneself, who is the first, as to whom are that knowledge and ignorance, is real knowledge. Um, this, again, it's uh, Bhagavan says a lot here, but it's in a very compact way. So we need to unpack it to understand what he's saying. Any state in which we are aware of phenomena, anything other than ourselves, is just a dream. And whatever phenomena we are aware of in a dream do not exist independent of our awareness of them. Since they appear and disappear in our awareness, phenomena are just a temporary appearance. So our knowledge of way or awareness of them is always preceded and preceded by and followed by ignorance or non-awareness of them. Therefore, knowledge of anything other than ourself cannot exist without prior and subsequent ignorance of it, as Bhagavan implies in the first sentence of this verse, ariyame vittu, arivu indruam, 
that uh, 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 that literally means leaving ignorance but leaving ignorance here implies without ignorance knowledge does not exist that is all our knowledge of other things is against the background of of uh, prior and subsequent ignorance of it um and whatever we may know in the waking state we cease to know any of it in sleep so they the the diet the knowledge and ignorance always go hand in hand and then the next point he says in the next sentence is a still more subtle point since nothing exists except in our, our awareness any particular thing exists or to be more precise seems to exist only so long as we are aware of it in some way or other whether directly by perceiving it or indirectly by remembering it inferring it supposing it imagining it or knowing about it in any other way such as by belief or hearsay and hence it does not exist at all before we become aware of it or after we cease to be aware of it therefore since we cannot be said to be ignorant of something that does not exist our prior and subsequent ignorance of something exists only so long as we know or are aware of that thing as bhagavan implies in the second sentence of this verse arivu vittu avariyame indra indrahom that means leaving or without knowledge that ignorance does not exist so there's no knowledge without ignorance and no ignorance without knowledge is what bhagavan is saying here that in other words knowledge and ignorance are dire they're a pair of opposites pairs of opposites always depend one each member of a pair of opposite depends upon the other one so as as, as bhagavan explains here knowledge and ignorance each are dependent on the other they're a pair of opposites so to whom do all such knowledge and ignorance appear in other words in whose views do they seem to exist only in the view of ourselves as ego because it is only when we rise and stand as ego namely in waking or dream but knowledge and ignorance of anything other than ourselves seem to exist when we do not rise or stand as ego such as in sleep neither knowledge nor ignorance of anything else seems to exist at all our supposed ignorance or non-awareness of other things in sleep seems to exist only from a perspective of ourself as ego in waking and dream because while we are actually asleep or in any other state of mano layer nothing else seems to exist either for us to know or to be ignorant of um so it is often said sleep is a state of ignorance but bhagavan clarified sleep is a state of ignorance only from the perspective of the mind in waking and dream in sleep we are beyond both knowledge and ignorance we are we remain just a pure awareness which is untouched by knowledge or ignorance of anything else we seem to be ego only so long as we are aware of anything other than ourselves so if instead of attending to anything else we attend only to ourselves who now seems to be ego we will thereby subside and dissolve back into the source from which we arose namely our self as pure awareness and what will then remain shining all alone is only our self as pure awareness namely the adjunct free awareness i am 
which is what we always actually are. Being aware of ourselves thus as just pure awareness alone is real awareness or true knowledge, as Bhagavan points out in the final sentence of this verse. And the Arivum Ariyameum Aku Indru Amudalam Tanne Ariyum Arive Arivu. That means only the knowledge or awareness but knows the reality of oneself, in other words, the reality of ego, who is the first, that is, ego is the first to rise, as um, by investigating uh, to whom are that knowledge and ignorance is real knowledge or real awareness. What he implies by saying this is that real awareness is only awareness that is aware of ourself as we actually are, namely as pure awareness, which is the reality of ego, who is the first thing to rise, and that we can be aware of ourselves thus only by investigating ego, who is the one to whom all knowledge and ignorance about other things appears. 